favorite TV show. And if we were good, we were allowed to stay up late on Saturday night and watch Perry Mason. It was special to get to watch Perry Mason with Dad. And I can still remember him saying, if I ever get arrested, if I'm ever thrown in jail, get Perry Mason to be my lawyer. Because Perry Mason always won his cases. Perry Mason was good at that. And the reason that he could win those cases was because he was an expert at presenting critical evidence. He even had a private detective guy. Trivia question. Remember the private detective's name on Perry Mason? Paul Drake. He sent his private detective, Paul Drake, out to gather that information so that at just the vital point in the trial, he could put that evidence forward and convince the jury uh, to the verdict that he desired. And so it was all about presenting evidence. Well, we want to talk about evidence, and I want to sort of put you in that role. Seeking evidence, having the right necessary evidence to make an important conclusion. Our study is going to be about spiritual things. Beginning this morning and throughout the Sunday mornings of this month of June, we want to do some investigation into evidence, necessary, critical evidence concerning important spiritual things. Uh, we're not going to be talking about criminal law like Perry Mason, but we're going to be talking about spiritual truths uh, that are necessary, that we need to know about, uh, that involve our souls. We'll be asking you to be the judge about some important things. Does the evidence support the idea that there is a God? Does the evidence suggest that Christianity is credible, that, the, uh, that it's reasonable to believe the things that are taught in the Bible? You be the judge. Are the Scriptures reliable in the information they give to mankind? And so we're going to be talking about important evidence in a series of lessons here on Sunday morning. And we hope we can say some things that will help and strengthen us. Have you ever had questions like these that we have on the screen? Have you ever wondered if it really is reasonable, for instance, to believe the Bible? And is that information contained in the Bible? Is it really reliable? Can we trust it? If you've had those kind of questions, I'd actually commend you. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing to wonder about those things. Certainly skeptics and doubters cast cast doubt on those kind of questions. But even as believers, we need to ask those kind of questions, and we've got to find the evidence that convinces us one way or another. A verse that we frequently use is 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. It says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you. As we so often point out, we need to be ready. People will ask us, and we need to have an answer. And so, why do you believe? If you do believe in God and the Bible and the things that are taught there, why do you believe? Would it be enough to say, I believe because my mom and dad believed and they taught me those things? Or would it be enough to say, well, all my friends do this. It's what my friends do. Everybody that I associate with, they believe these things, and so I just do what they do. Would that be good enough? I think you agree that that's not good enough. Would it even be enough to say, I believe because the Bible says so? Well, in a sense, even that's not good enough because we've got to first prove the Bible. If we can prove the Bible, then we can say the Bible says, and that can serve as our base of belief and faith and practice. But we even have to back up and be able to demonstrate that the Bible is so. We need that evidence. 
we need the evidence to conclude that it is more reasonable to believe than to not believe. And I think when all the evidence is put forth on the table, we can say, as the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 46, I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. When it comes to these matters, we don't have anything to be ashamed about. We have real basis for what we believe and the things that we do, and we want to look at that evidence in our studies together. And so we're going to be looking at what the evidence says in this series of lessons. Before we start into that this morning, let me stop to thank everybody for being present. As Dale already mentioned, we've got a good number together this morning, and we're encouraged by the very fact that you are here. And we're glad that you've chosen to be a part of our assembly this morning. Thanks for coming. And to those who are visiting with us, we want to invite you to come back every time you have a chance to be present. And we always would be glad to entertain any questions you have about what we're doing here and why we're doing it this way. We thank you all for being present. We hope and pray that everybody will be encouraged by our assembly this morning. But most of all, we pray that God will be glorified by the time that we spend together worshiping Him today. What about the evidence? In this first lesson, we simply want to say that the evidence indicates clearly that there is a God. Where would we start this discussion about evidence anyway? Well, I think the most fun fundamental question of all is the question about the existence of God. And I believe the evidence supports the conclusion that there definitely is a God in heaven. Interestingly, the Bible makes no formal argumentation about, about the existence of God. Instead, the Bible just starts out, as Anthony read for us a few moments ago, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't talk about God's existence. It just begins talking about what God did in the creation of the universe. And so, how would we go about to prove God? I believe that we can prove God's existence to any fair-minded observer, but we have to talk for a minute about the very nature of our proof. What kind of proof can we offer? Well, some people say you can't prove God because there is no empirical evidence to the existence of God. People are looking for empirical evidence. Empirical evidence is the kind you might get if you went into a laboratory somewhere and you were able to, to repeat an experiment to come to an inclusion conclusion. For instance, uh, what if Dan here this morning, what if I told Dan, you know, if you heat up water, if you just keep heating it up, it'll finally get hot enough and it'll begin to bubble and turn into a vapor and eventually the water will completely disappear into thin air. It will boil away. You can boil that water, you can vaporize it, it will disappear. And Dan says to me, I don't believe that. That, I, that sounds incredible to me. I just can't believe that you could make water vaporize like that. I said, well, come on. And we go into the laboratory and we'll boil up some water and we'll watch it happen. We'll measure it. We'll take the temperature. When it reaches 212 degrees Fahrenheit, it starts disappearing into thin air. And so we get done with that. And Dan said, well, I saw it, but I still can't believe it. Okay, let's do it again. And we'll repeat that experiment as many times as we have to to finally convince Dan that you can vaporize water at 212 degrees Fahrenheit. That's empirical evidence. That's the kind that you can get by performing an experiment, going into a laboratory. Now, I want to tell you, we do not have that kind of evidence about God. I can't bring God to you here this morning and sit him right there on a chair and say, come up and touch him if you want to. And listen to him with your ears. Listen to him speak, you know. 
we, we cannot sense God in that way with our natural senses. Therefore, we don't have we, we don't have this capacity to provide empirical evidence to the existence of God. And so someone says, well, okay, then you just admit it. You can't prove God. No, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't admit that. and didn't intend to. I say we don't have that kind of evidence, but we have another kind of evidence that we might suggest with this picture of a gun. What if in our community there was a uh, murder took place, a dead body was found? And so, of course, whenever that happens, the police begin to investigate to find out who did it, what happened, and so forth. So they find this gun. All right, so they find this gun, and they do that ballistics test thing that they do on bullets. And they, they, they pulled this bullet out of the dead body, and they have matched it to this pistol. And they said, this pistol fired the bullet that killed that man. Now they do a little more investigating. This gun has a serial number stamped on it. And they are able to trace that to me. It's my gun. And furthermore, that gun is just covered in my fingerprints and nobody else's. And so what are they going to do? They're going to arrest me for murder, right? And although nobody saw it happen, and although it certainly is not the kind of thing that you can repeat for observance, can they convict me? Can they produce enough evidence to, to satisfy a jury that I'm the guy who killed the man? Well, of course they can. They do that all the time, right? This is not empirical evidence. This is what's called prima facie evidence. Uh, prima facie evidence is self-evident conclusion drawn from facts. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about proving God. We can't produce God here for you to touch and, and to feel and so forth, but we can provide evidence that leads to a necessary conclusion based upon the facts. And so that's the kind of evidence that we present when people are asking us, why do you believe there is a God? What is some of that evidence? We know. We're not just saying we think. We're saying we know that there is a God because of this argument. The argument that every effect demands an adequate cause. Now, do you get that? In other words, if you see something, you know that something must have caused that something to be so. Every effect demands an adequate cause. Let me suggest to you, that, that picture's not coming out very clear, but here's, you husbands, here's your wife, and she's in bed, and she's terrified at something she's just heard. She wakes you up in the middle of the night and says, Did you hear that? Did you hear that? And you're kind of half asleep. You say, Yeah, yeah, that's something, I guess. She said, There's somebody in the house. Yeah, I heard that. There's somebody in the house. You've got to go see. Oh, it's, uh, now it was nothing. You tell you, it was nothing. And you just want to roll over and go back and say, it was nothing. No! She said, I heard a noise and something had to cause that noise. And I want to know what it was. Get up and find out. There's somebody in this house. In other words, when your wife heard that noise and it woke her out of sleep, she's convinced that something caused that noise, right? The effect is noise. She heard a noise. She is certain that something necessarily caused that noise, right? Well, of course, because that's the way we reason. That's the way our mind works. When you, when you see or hear or sense something, you know that something must have caused that to happen. And so that's the idea we're suggesting here. Every effect demands an adequate cause. All right. Now, with that idea in mind, 
think of some of the things that we see. For instance, think of the physical universe. The physical universe is obviously here, and so we have an effect. The effect is the physical universe exists. Now the question is, what caused the physical universe to be here? We really have only three options. I hope you'll agree with me as, we, as I walk you through the three options. One option is the physical universe is here because it's always been here. It's eternal. The, 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 the earth, our solar system, our galaxy, the whole physical universe exists because it always has existed. It is eternal as one option. Another option is that the physical universe is here having created itself out of nothing. That's an option. You'd have to say that is an option. Either it's always been here, or it created itself, or third, it was created by some force outside itself and superior to it. Now, as I said, I want to suggest to you those are the only three options that we have. It's got to be one of those, right? So let's look at each one just briefly. What about the idea that the universe is eternal? It's always been here. What about that? Well, even scientists admit that our universe is not eternal. Dr. Robert Jastrow, in a book entitled Until the Sun Dies, a famous physicist said this. And he's not speaking from a biblical point of view, just from a scientific point of view. Dr. Robert Jastrow said, quote, As a result of the most recent discoveries, we can say with a fair degree of confidence that our universe has not existed forever that it began abruptly without apparent cause in a blinding event that defies scientific explanation. And so here's a famous physicist who says, speaking scientifically, we believe that our universe has not always existed. It has not always been here. It is not eternal. Just think about the ideas that are presented to us, even in our news media, when they talk about how old our universe is. Now, they give outrageous ages for how old our universe is. We don't agree with their timetable. But the very fact that they try to suggest how old our universe is is an admission of the fact that they understand it hasn't always been here, right? When you try to put an age to something, the very fact that you put an age on it says there was a time when it didn't exist and it began and it's been here since that point in time. Even scientists admit that our universe is not eternal. So that option got, has got to be taken off the table. What about the idea that our universe created itself? Well, that's pretty outrageous in itself, isn't it? That the universe created itself. Too hard to believe. What if I tried to convince you that I was over here yesterday in the auditorium and there was nothing up here on this platform. Nothing. There was nothing up here. And while I was sitting there and watching this pulpit stand and that table just materialized out of nothing, you'd be ready to haul me off to the funny farm, wouldn't you? You know that doesn't happen. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing can create itself. And if I just adamantly affirm, yes, I saw it with my own eyes, I'm absolutely convinced that's what happened, you'd really think I'd lost it altogether. Because we all know, and again, science confirms, nothing comes from nothing, right? And so that option has to be taken off the table as well. And so that really only leaves us with one option. And that is, we know the physical universe is here. That's the effect. 
What's the cause? The cause has to be that it was created by some force outside itself and superior to it. That's what has to be true. Uh, the universe was created by something that existed before it did, that's superior to it, that's of a different nature than it is. The uncaused first cause is God himself. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4, the Hebrew writer says, For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. You drive down the road and you see a house standing there. What do you know? Although you may not know when or who, you know somebody built that house. Houses don't build themselves. Somebody built that house. Basically, the Hebrew writer here is arguing every effect demands an adequate cause. Every house is built by some man. But he who built all things is God. Our universe exists. God caused it to exist. In Romans chapter 1, beginning verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be, may be known of God is manifest unto them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. By the way, the last part of that, verse 20, is our new memory verse for this week. A little longer, a little harder, but an important one. Notice, the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. Look around. Look at all of the things that we see right here in our own planet. And then look beyond our planet to the vastness of the universe. When you see all of that, it's clear evidence that there is a God in heaven. In fact, so much so that Paul says those who deny it are without excuse. And so, again, we know that there is a God because... Every effect demands an adequate cause. The effect is, here we are. What caused it to be? The answer has to be God. There's really no alternative to that explanation. Furthermore, if we were going to argue for the existence of God, we would say we know that there is a God because the universe shows abundant signs of design. Let me take you back to the illustration I was offering a minute ago about I was here yesterday and there was nothing on this platform. You didn't believe me when I said that this pulpit stand and that table just suddenly materialized on there. You wouldn't believe me about that, would you? Okay, well, let me change my story a little bit. Let me say I was here yesterday by myself. I was right out there sitting in one of those seats. Now, there was a pretty nice stack of lumber up here on this platform. It was just lumber. It was just loose pieces of wood. But there was wood. There were just pieces of wood laying up here. And as I watched, those pieces of wood suddenly moved about and constructed themselves into these pieces of finished furniture. You believe that? Someone says, no, we're still taking you off to the funny farm. We still think you're crazy. That doesn't happen. Things don't design themselves. Things that show obvious craftsmanship and workmanship those don't just happen on their own. Somebody did this. I don't know who it was, but somebody built this pulpit stand. Somebody built that table. They took lumber and they fashioned it into these obviously designed finished products, right? Well, what about our universe? Not only does our universe exist, that was our first argument, but our universe shows abundant signs of design. And that's an argument for the existence of God as well. For instance, think about the stars and the planets for a minute. Our sun 
is a million times bigger than planet Earth, which is, sort of puts it in perspective. But even at that, our sun is just a star, actually a pretty average star, not even the big one in the universe. And so our sun is enormous, but it's just an average star. It's estimated that, that now get this number, it's astronomical. It's estimated that there are 100 billion stars in our galaxy. We are in the Milky Way galaxy, right? And in the Milky Way galaxy, it's estimated there are 100 billion stars. Now get this, but the Milky Way galaxy is just one galaxy out of probably a billion galaxies. So there's, there's 100 billion stars in our galaxies, but there are probably a, a, a billion galaxies similar to our own out there in the universe. Where did that all come from, anyway? And what's amazing is that all of this universe moves in clockwise clock-like fashion, perfect movement, like a clock. For instance, what about our sun and our planet Earth? For all the kids in science class, how far is the sun from us? How far are we from the sun? 93 million miles, right? 93 million miles from the sun to planet Earth. Do you know that that is an absolutely critical distance? If the Earth were 5% closer to the sun than it is, all of the water on earth would vaporize. It'd be so hot here, life could not be sustained. We couldn't live here if the earth were just 5% closer to the sun than it is now. If we were 5% farther away from the sun than we are now, everything would freeze. Uh, it'd be so cold we couldn't exist. Now, how did that just happen to be so, that we were just at that right critical distance? And in addition to that, we know that our Earth rotates. Angular velocity is a thousand miles per hour. You know, we think we're sitting still right now, but we're moving pretty fast as the Earth spins on its axis. But you know that that spin rate is absolutely necessary to our existence here. Did you know that three quarters of the Earth's surface is covered with water? Also, absolutely necessary to control the temperatures on Earth. Did you know that we're being pressed down upon by 15 pounds per square inch of air pressure? that if we didn't have that, we'd all blow up like a balloon and explode? How did all that happen? There's just so many things. That, we're just touching the hem of the garment. There are so many things that are absolutely critical to be just right, just in place, so that we can exist here on planet Earth. How did that all get designed that way anyway? You mean to tell me you think it just happened by chance? That's too incredible to even think about. Think about our human bodies. By the way, talking about the, the, the universe, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth His handiwork. That's really true, isn't it? When we talk about all those details that we were just expressing. In addition to something as big as the universe and all the stars and planets, think about our human bodies. Uh, our human bodies are composed of trillions of cells. In each cell, of course, there is, we've come to know, something called DNA, uh, the coded information per pertinent to the cells of our body. Experts tell us that if you were to take the DNA information from one single human cell and try to write it all out, that it would fill a thousand books the size of an encyclopedia. Just the information coded into one human cell. We're told that the human nervous system, the human brain and nervous system, is the most complex arrangement of matter in the universe. How did it all happen? How did it get that way? 
Well, we're saying that there's an abundant evidence of design in our human bodies. And the psalmist said in Psalm 139, verse 14, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. And that is absolutely so. When we think about our, our human bodies and the obvious design of them, it is a confirmation that there is a God. And so, not only does the universe exist, but when we see all the evidence of design in the universe, it is an argument for the existence of God. We have a couple other arguments we can make, we'll make them quickly. One is man's moral nature. You know, everybody has an idea of what's right and wrong. Someone says, uh, what are you cutting in line? I was here first. Or, you how would you like it if somebody did that to you? Someone might say. Or someone says, give me some of your popcorn, you ate some of mine. We have this basic sense of right and wrong. Sort of a sixth sense, a basic fair play. Uh, now, you can debate various concepts of right and wrong, but everyone has a, a sense of what's right. Even a criminal who's been convicted and put in jail. How often do we hear in the news about a criminal in jail who's trying to sue the state because he doesn't think he's being treated fairly? Even a criminal has this basic idea of right and wrong. Where did that moral nature come from? Uh, you know, matter is not moral. Uh, this pulpit stand that we've been talking about this morning, it doesn't have that basic sense of right. Now, it's matter, but it doesn't have that basic sense of right and wrong. Plant life doesn't have that basic sense of right and wrong. Even animals don't have that basic sense of right and wrong. You know, one animal goes out and kills another. Well, we don't hold him to the same standard that we do a man, Right? Because an animal doesn't have a moral nature like a man has. Where did that moral nature come from? The very fact that man has a moral nature suggests that there's a God who placed that within him. In Romans chapter 2, beginning verse 14, the Apostle Paul speaks of such things. He says, For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which, note, show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Paul talked about a law written in the heart. Where did that come from? I think he's describing that basic moral nature that man has. Where do we get it? You know, the evolutionists can't answer that. We've asked them before, where did men get the idea that we should care for the poor, the weak, the sick, the needy? You know, in nature that doesn't happen. In the animal world, if an animal's sick, another one will likely kill it, maybe eat it. Certainly not nurse it back to health. Where did we as humans decide that we should nurse our sick back to health? Where'd that come from? Where'd we get that moral concept? Evolution would never have produced that. Evolution says if somebody's sick, let him die. They're just, they're just weighing us down. They're slowing us down here. But we decided we're going to nurse them back to health. Why did, where did that come from? It had to come from God. God put a moral nature in man. Man's moral nature is an argument that there is a God in heaven. And finally, let me suggest to you man's inclination to worship. Wherever men have been found, whatever time and place they've been found worshiping, where did they get this desire to worship? Where did it come from? You know, the oldest, interestingly, the oldest tradition of worship as Archaeologists and historians have searched and found the oldest 
tradition of worship is that of men worshiping a single God. Where did that come from? Man's inclination to worship is also an argument for the existence of God. And so, our conclusion is, the evidence says that there is a God. Again, this is not, we're trying to take this beyond the realm of just, I think so, to try and actually produce evidence that would convince someone who is really honestly inquiring, is there a God? Yes, the evidence says that there is a God. Now, if that's the, the evidence, then what should I do about that? If that's what the evidence proves, what should I do? And the answer is, I should want to learn about that God and obey what he has instructed me to do. Really, that's the only logical conclusion, isn't it? If there is a God in heaven, and the evidence clearly supports the idea that there is, then I need to know about him. I need to learn about him, and I need to do whatever it is that he wants me to do it. God, thankfully, has revealed himself, not generally alone. I mean, he's revealed himself generally in the universe, as we've been talking about in our lesson this morning. But he has revealed himself to us specifically through the Bible, his word. And in the Bible, he tells us what he wants. He tells us that we can come to him, to come into a relationship with him through hearing the truth of the gospel, believing it, repenting of our sins, confessing our faith in Jesus, and being baptized for remission of sin. If you've never done that, we hope you'll make that decision without delay. The evidence is there is a God. Logically, you must do what he wants you to do. And the plan of salvation, as we've just briefly mentioned it, is how he's revealed that we can come into a relationship with him, have the forgiveness of our past sins, be in a relationship now with the hope of heaven in eternity. If you've never become a Christian, we hope you'll make that decision without delay. If you're a Christian already, but you've not been faithful in following him, come back to him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song. Father, 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 Father